Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Hey, we have Sam Juan with us this morning. Sam, I've been looking forward to this conversation. I'm so excited to have you on. Um, thank you for being with us. I'm, I'm really excited to do this. I really appreciate you giving me the chance to share with your church because a lot of what I share today is um, hopefully helpful, but really it does come from a very personal place. And I feel like it is kind of at this intersection of my um, ministry experience, personal experience, and also even um, just my education and training. So I, I, I'm excited that you've given me this chance. Oh, well, thanks, Sam. Um, it's, uh, it's a fun thing, the summer mixtape series that, that mm -hmm. we've been in, getting to talk to a bunch of different people, a very diverse group of people. Um, both uh, age, gender, race, ethnicity, but also just perspective. And, and you bring that, as you talked about, a, a unique perspective. And so I want to give people a little bit more information on, on you, kind of the bio side, and then I'm going to ask you to, to share a little bit of your story sure. after that. Um, so Sam was born in Seoul, Korea, and his family immigrated to America when he was less than a year old. Um, he grew up in the Korean church, but spent his formative years as a part of multiple cultures, which we'll hear a lot about. Um, in the future, but that included a Korean immigrant communities, low-income minority communities, and blue-collar suburban communities in both Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Dallas, Texas. Um, Sam was also a pastor's kid who wrestled with faith at times before dedicating his life to Jesus during his college days at the University of Wisconsin. Go Badgers! Is that what you say, right? Oh, yeah, on Wisconsin, go blue. On, so. Okay, okay, I was way <laughs> off. <laughs> no, no problem, no problem. Uh, and then after college, he attended the University of Michigan, where he received his doctorate of pharmacy. Um, he also has a master's of theology and a PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary. Multiple doctorates, multiple masters, impressive resume, man. Also spent three years in Russia doing student ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. Um, Sam and his wife, Hannah, live there in Dallas, and they have three wonderful kids, Rachel, who's in medical school, Caleb, who is a high school senior, that, that uh, forever famous 2020 mm -hmm. class, Caleb's a part of that, and then Christopher, who is in middle school. Now, Sam and I, actually, we have one of those rare, um, healthy relationships that we connected on Twitter um, and met each other on Twitter, and it didn't turn out to be... Um, the dumpster fire that many people think that it is or talk about it is, um, it is that sometimes, I'll be honest, like, Twitter can be that sometimes, but um, I've made a number of great um, friends and acquaintances through that, and I count you as one of those, Sam. So, man, I'm so glad that you're here with us. Um, so, yeah, we just tell us a little bit of, of your story. Obviously, that was your bio, but a little bit deeper uh, of who you are, where sure. you're from, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, thanks again for having me, and I'm um, just really excited to be able to talk to the folks at Restore Austin because it's a church that, through you, I've gotten to follow a little bit, and I love what you are doing there, the community you have there. And I feel like you are the type of folks that I want to share these stories and thoughts with yeah. uh, because yeah. I feel like your community gets it. 
Um, mm. So I, I'm kind of a, I'm third culture. Uh, so it would be one of the things I want to help put some light on today is that when you come across someone like me, and I, I want to be clear, everything I share today is very um, personal. So I'm not, I'm not claiming to speak for all Asian Americans or all people of color or all minorities, but I do feel that there are aspects of my story that will help shed light on the experiences that are common to immigrants, minorities, and people of color um, in a more general sense. I got to grow up um, for early childhood in Ann Arbor where it was very idyllic, it was very ideal. It was like model UN at school because I was in a school that was attended primarily by the children of international students. And so I was in an upper crust type of setting with kids from all over the world. I am not joking. I had friends, uh, literally our next door neighbor was from uh, uh, Kuwait. Our friends down the, just down the hall from us or down the building from us uh, was from Saudi Arabia. And then I had friends that were Native American in our apartment complex. And so, and, and at the school, my classrooms were always diverse. I never felt that being Korean American made me um, stick out in, in a negative sense there because there were Japanese American, other Korean Americans, there were black, white, there were uh, European immigrants, there were kids from um, South America. So the classrooms there uh, and the school experience was almost defined by diversity. And I grew up, I'm a little older, and so I grew up in an age when everyone was really into the melting pot, you know, narrative. And so it was a great time uh, to be there. And I'm thankful because looking back, I realized it helped me form some healthy uh, views of self um, as a young child. But that all fell apart quickly in the summer of 1980 because my family moved to Dallas. My dad became a student at Dallas Seminary himself. And that put us into an incredibly disruptive transition because we went from that almost model UN utopian uh, childhood in Dallas. And now I'm entering fifth grade. And now I'm in a low income government subsidized housing complex on the east side of Dallas, just outside of downtown. And it was um, a pretty rough neighborhood. And not just that, suddenly it was not diverse. I, it was, I would say 90 plus percent African-American and the remaining uh, group of people percentage would be either white or Hispanic. And so my brother and I became suddenly the only Asian boys along with one Vietnamese girl that we knew of at our entire school. And so we went from being part of this diverse culture where everyone was kind of accepted and understood um, and appreciated to being outsiders for sure and pariahs. And, 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 it, and it took a few years living there to finally become part of that community, but it was a rough go. Early on, we well, just being picked on, um, getting into fights, things like that, and just a lot of teasing, bullying about being Asian. You know, all the, all the ching chong jokes, all the, 
kung fu jokes and 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 to to add insult to injury everyone always just thought we were chinese or japanese no one had any concept that we were korean and when we said so it, it just seemed lost on them so yeah. it was really just feeling kind of invisible um and too visible all at the same time oh that's good yeah. so we went to that and then i finished out high school later my last few years of high school at a more suburban high school, which was then majority white. And it okay. was a kind of blue class to middle class, blue car to middle class. And it was very much like living in a John Hughes movie from the 80s. I mean, it, my high school really was like being in um, 16 Candles or Pretty in yeah. Pink or um, Breakfast Club. And so, um, and I, I enjoyed every phase I was in, because we came to really enjoy our time in the lower income community once we became accepted and part of that community. And that's going to kind of give you some background as to why I have such a soft heart for my um, black friends, black brothers and sisters, because I kind of saw it up close and personal from every side, living there, being part of that world. And I'm much more attuned to how racism and prejudice affects that group of people. Um, and and I, I really identify with that in a lot of ways. So that's kind of the background that um, Hope fills in some of those gaps. Yeah, that's so helpful, Sam. And I, I remember um, one thing that when we spoke last, you actually mentioned that um, that little girl from Vietnam that um, people either uh, assume that she was your sister or your girlfriend mm -hmm. and they would say right. she your sister or your girlfriend. Right. Right. Um, and how I, I loved what you said about how you felt invisible and too visible all at mm -hmm. the same time. And I think that's not an experience I've ever had. Um, that's mm -hmm. not something that I can, um, empathize with, but I can certainly sympathize with it and, mm -hmm. and attempt to understand it. And I, I want all of us to attempt to understand your story and how it influences um, all of those different things that, that you talked about, and particularly this idea of being third culture. You called yourself third culture, and I'd love to explore what that means and what it sure. is, not necessarily American or Korean or even Korean American or Asian American. So can you just unpack what third culture means and what it looks like to navigate, especially kind of the church and Christian yes. world as a, a third culture person, both growing up and now? Sure, man. I, yeah, let's, let's do that. Let me begin by um, giving a little bit of biblical context to what I'd like to get into today. Yeah. Um, and so that people understand, especially the folks at your church, that um, this does have very practical theological implications for how we live as a community of, of redeemed peoples serving a single king but coming from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So yeah. um, in the New Testament, what you see, and it's kind of an app that we're coming up on Pentecost, because Pentecost in Acts 2 is this really important event for, it's a very important early New Covenant event, because now you're seeing an interesting phenomenon. One of the things that, there's a lot of things we can talk about Pentecost, but let me just highlight one aspect. The tongues that we see there are these world languages being spoken. Mm -hmm. And what the Spirit does is, in a sense, He redeems Babel. So at Babel, humanity at the height of its hubris and sin is, is punished by God. And, 
And so we are made to lose our sense of commonality and we become very tribal. And I want to be clear, one of the things I think people misunderstand is that Babel was the origination of nations and languages. That's not true. Right. Nations, ethnicities, different peoples existed up to Babel. What Babel did was, in a curse, God punished our arrogance by dividing us into tribal uh, factions. More, He didn't create languages. That was always there. And, and Revelation uh, 7, frankly, gives us a wonderful understanding of that because um, what we see there is that the the beauty of humanity in its finally glorified and redeemed form is a humanity from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Yes. So, so humanity at its best is diverse. It's yes. not homogeneous. We're not at our best when we become this one single unrecognizable kind of um, single identity. So that's, that's such important, an important for us to, yeah. Such an important point, man. I, I'm glad that you said that because I do think that there is a sense because of a misunderstanding of Babel to, mm -hmm. to believe what you just said, that somehow language and, and different cultures and ethnicities and all of that stuff is, is some negative thing or form of punishment. When in reality, right. we see the new heaven and new earth, those things still exist where there is no right. sin, there is no anything, right? So those things have been good from the beginning. That's right. Um, what what is bad is the the enmity enmity that exists between uh, exactly. those things and the raising of one above the other. Yeah. Yes. That's good. Absolutely. So so what we see in the New Testament is a real struggle early on for this new church community to kind of reconcile these tensions. Um, yeah. We saw it in Acts uh, with the uh, the Hellenistic uh, widows and the Jewish widows. And what you see evolving here is a very early form of majority culture, minority culture. Hmm. So the Greek Jewish members of the early church were contending with the fact that in the early church, Jewish culture, so not Judaism, not the religion, right. but the culture was the predominant culture of the early church because the apostles were Jewish. And many of the earliest followers of Christ were Jewish. Yeah. And so the culture was Jewish and people were starting to come into this body from outside of Judaism. And even within Judaism, you had a distinction between those who were born Jewish versus those who were Jewish, uh, but had adopted or were, were born into Hellenistic type of settings. And so, um, how did the church address this? It's really important. We can take a few lessons away from the apostolic writings. And I'm, so I'm compressing a lot here, but just bear with me. The takeaways for me are when these divisions popped up in a very tangible sense. And so the way they handled that in, in Acts 6, for example, with the, uh, the widows from the two different groups is very telling. They didn't say, hey, just deal with it. This is the way it is here. Instead, the apostles took time out to elect members of the church to oversee ministry to that group, saying they have been neglected. That's, that's not good. Let's address it. Here's what they did, though. They elected Hellenistic Jewish people to oversee mm. them. Those deacons were not, if you look at the names, they were not Semitic Jewish people, but rather Hellenistic Jews. They were from those groups, so they were representative. So that's important. That's and then, fantastic, Sam. Yeah. 
And then um, you gave us a great point in, in what Paul talks about in Ephesians. He talks about the dividing wall having been removed and that there's this new man, but the new man is not this homogeneous humanity. Rather, it's made up of Jew and Gentiles. Yeah. And he unpacks that. Where, where we see this come to a head in a, in a really powerful way is in Galatia. So the whole epistle to the Galatians is dealing with this kind of form of Judaizing, that uh, um, this heresy that was creeping into the church, and Paul wanted to really nip it in the bud. And where you saw it really hit in a very practical way was his confrontation with Peter. So yeah. Peter was struggling because he's Jewish through and through. And, and so some of these Judaizers wanted to force new converts, especially coming out of Gentile cultures, to accept circumcision, which was the main issue. But there were other things, such as Paul references in other letters, things like the meat sacrifice to mm -hmm. idols. So these are all cultural issues. They're not gospel issues. Right. And so Paul has to step in and very strongly, as he said, I opposed Peter to his face because yeah. he was, what he saw was, you're imposing your culture on these new converts, not the gospel. So it's important for us to see that in the early church, there was an, a recognition that becoming a follower of Christ is a transnational, transethnic, intercultural um, phenomenon. And the community was meant to be diverse. Um, in Colossians 3, 10 and 11, Paul puts it great. There, there is no Jew or Greek. There's no barbarian or Scythian. There's no male or female. What he's not saying is there's no distinction. What he's saying is that those identities no longer separate us. Yes. Um, yes. But, but we maintain them. So, so I just wanted to give that kind of prelude to help understand where I'm going to go in terms of the practical implications when it comes to what you're wanting to talk about today, which is third culture folks, cross-cultural interactions, and identity within our churches. So Sam, That's so good, Sam. I, I appreciate that you give that undergirding. Obviously, everything we do is, is undergirded by, by Christ and, mm -hmm. and um, the resurrected Christ and his gospel and all of that stuff. And um, I, I, I love that you, you started with that and brought that in. Um, it, it was a new insight. I'll be honest, a new insight for me about the, about the widows and appointing um, Hellenistic people to lead that. And so you, you have this incredible thing of you have majority culture in the same church, majority culture kind of uh, ignoring or even maybe oppressing minority culture in the church. And so when the leaders of the church see that, they, they don't ignore it. They go into it head on. They say, this is not okay. And the people they appoint to oversee how to make it okay and how to bring more equity is people from the minority right. culture. That's, right. that's incredible, man. Thank you for sharing that. That's, uh, I, I can't wait to hear the rest of it, but man, that's worth all of it right there. That's fantastic. Sure. So yeah, well, talk to us more about how, how it kind of yeah, practically plays itself okay. out now. So let me uh, kind of um, unpack a little bit. And I, I want to give... Uh, kind of like three areas, I think, where majority culture uh, can grow in their ability to better serve and better build relationships with minorities within your churches. So first one is seeing majority culture. Um, so I think one of the things, uh, David Foster Wallace had this great anecdote, so I'll just paraphrase it. He said, there are these two young fish walking down the street and an older fish walks by, swims by and says, Hey, hey, boys, how's the water? 
And the two fish, young fish look at each other and say, what's water? Sure. And the problem is that, and what he's highlighting there is that when you're awash in something, you rarely recognize it. Yeah. So one thing that me and many other people of color minorities see is that um, majority culture is a distinct culture, or I, I, and I might call it white culture, and I don't say that in a derogative way. Sure. Um, it's a culture. So the way a lot of my white friends, the movies they prefer, the, the clothes they wear, the way they speak, these are all things that have cultural um, significance, even if they don't recognize it. So here's the problem. It's always been seen as white culture is just the way it is. It's right. just the culture. And so one of the first things I think it helps to do is when um, I have good conversations with my white friends is for them to start unpacking, oh, this isn't just the way it is. This is actually the way it is for me because of my background being of European lineage in an American white society. And so that has cultural significance, just as me being Korean American has cultural significance. Except my culture is always worn right out on the sleeve, whereas your culture tends to be in the background. It's the water we swim in. So the first thing I would say is just understanding that we're all cultured in a sense. It's just that one culture right now in America is the dominant culture. It's the culture yeah. by which all other cultures are measured and compared. So just, uh, I'm stating that as a fact. I'm not really, right. you know, making any moral judgments. It's just the fact of the matter. And yeah, I remember, is, being, I remember being in college and um, my, my best friend in college, the best man in my wedding um, is African-American guy. And uh, we were having a conversation really early on. His name's Wayne. He's actually, he preached at our church before. So a lot of, a lot of our pe- folks know him. Um, but I remember asking him about BET, right? About black entertainment television and said, <laughs> what, what, why, why do you have black entertainment television and, and it would be wrong, you know, or why, why don't we have white entertainment television, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember he said, all the rest of it is white entertainment. <laughs> yes. And, and that blew my mind. Like I never, because I'm in the water and I spent the mm-hmm. first 18, 19, 20 years just in the water, just this is what life is. Yes. Um, I didn't understand that, that for somebody, um, a black person, right? Or a Korean person or whatever, they come in and they see every other channel is white entertainment television. Right. And so having black entertainment television is important for black people, right? And so that's mm-hmm. an illustration of what you're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. It's a great ex- illustration, in fact. And I, I love the way you put it. Everything else is white entertainment television. Right. It, it, and it's true. And that's kind of the same way we view clothing, the way we view food. So imagine, uh, it, all you have to do is just think about the times you've traveled outside of America. Yeah. Um, that's how it feels for minorities, except mm-hmm. it's just your everyday reality. So yeah. for us, unfortunately, it's not tourism. It's just life is yeah. to feel like, yeah, where do they have our clothes? Where do they have our food? Um, so anyway, that's so just first of all, it's just recognizing how culturally situated all of us are, not just those of us who are from different cultures. This will help to bring to light the in-group, out-group dynamics that are unfortunately just part of every institution. Um, It also helps us to understand how majority-minority culture often interacts in the tensions. Number two is unconscious bias. 
So let me, let me give you a quick, uh, helpful way to understand this. Um, and I'm going to begin by giving you a definition of racism that Garland Dunlap, he's a, he's a fellow alum of DTS, and he uh, recently I got to work with him on a panel for spiritual formation there. And he gave me this definition of racism that blew me away. And so I just want to share that with you folks. Um, and what this helps you do is realize racism often is a sensitive word because we take it as a slur. Um, so when we hear racism, our, we get defensive. We, we tense up and we don't want to hear anything else. But let me kind of share what he said. He, he put it this way. Um, racism is acknowledging that uh, or thinking, my version of humanity is better than your version of humanity, which mm, means there are different rules which we live by. Yeah. It, and and it, it's true. It's a wonderful way to understand racism. So I give that as the underpinning for understanding unconscious bias. So here's what happens. We all do this, and I call it filling in the gaps. So when I meet a new person, whether it's on the street or in a professional setting or in a personal social setting, I immediately, and this is just a human thing. This is not, yeah. this is not racist. It's just called filling in the gaps. I size you up. I look at what you're wearing. I look at, I listen to the way you talk. I listen to your bio and I can get bits and pieces. So early on, I've got your name. I've got your profession most likely. But what I start doing, and this is a lot of it is even unconscious. I start filling in the gaps. Hmm. I start assuming things about you based on where you're from, your ethnicity, your culture, and even your profession, and whether you're married or single. We all do this. And it's just a normal human ability that we develop over time. And it's a very social thing. So it can be good. Here's where it becomes fraught. When I am with other Korean Americans, I'm good at this because we have so much shared experience. So I can meet Paul Kim. And immediately, if Paul tells me where he's from and where he grew up in his age, I can already start to put together some things about him. And a lot of them will largely be pretty accurate because we have a lot of shared experience and context. When I meet a black friend for the first time, I can sort of do this because we will quickly start to find commonalities from our upbringing, for example. Here's where I find majority people, culture people struggle. For those who have largely spent their life in a kind of homogeneous cultural setting, they don't fill in the gaps well. So here's what they do. They use stereotypes and tropes because that's all they know. It's, right. This is not an insidious thing that they do. It's simply more of an ignorant thing. So I've had this happen so many times. Uh, as an Asian American, we get this a lot. Uh, when I work as a pharma, I used to work as a pharmacist at Walmart. And a couple of things uh, that you would often see come up. One is the trope that we all look young. So uh, I often would have customers say, where's the pharmacist? I said, oh, I'm, I'm filling in today. They go, oh, you, but you're a student. Where's the real pharmacist? And I'm saying, no, no, I, I have a license. I had one woman who refused to take her prescription until I showed her my driver's license and my pharmacy license. Wow. She was just not convinced. And, and 
I did look young when I was like back then. I don't look young now, but I did. <laughs> um, uh, number two, uh, I constantly still to this day get, man, you speak English really well. And, I, <laughs> and, and here's what's funny about that. I'm American. I, I'm an American citizen. I was literally raised here. Right. And yet there's an, there's an expectation that I wouldn't be able to speak English really well because I don't look like an American. Right. Um, and then the third one is uh, you get this uh, when it comes to like uh, people just say like, what's taking so long with that prescription? And I'm like, well, I'm still working on it. I go, I thought you, all you Asians were good at math. I thought all you Orientals were good at counting. And I just, it, you know, you just throw your yeah. hands up. So right. here's what it is. But, that's a very, those are just very, you know, blatant examples, but it helps illustrate we all do this though. If you really are very honest with yourself right now, you can probably think of all the times in your life you have met someone outside of your culture and filled in the gaps without really thinking about it using tropes and stereotypes. Yeah, definitely. Where it takes a dark turn is when we do this. For example, it's in the news right now, so let me address it. When we criminalize all black men, we right. just assume that's a black man, and we automatically think threat. We automatically think danger. We automatically think um, predator or criminal. Right. We don't realize it, but that's so deeply ingrained. Or when you see someone of Hispanic heritage and just think, I guarantee you that guy doesn't have a college degree. He, mm -hmm. he probably is here illegally. I, we just assume things or we, yeah. you know, so unconscious bias is something that majority culture has to come to grips with in, yeah. in terms of being able to welcome minorities and people of color and immigrants into your communities. Can I get to know them honestly and deeply and not just resort to uh, filling in the gaps using kind of spurious or stereotypical information. The only way to do that is to not get to know people outside yes, of your yes. culture groups. Yep. So that's the second. Um, and then the final thing is, is um, what I would call very subtle paternalism. So mm -hmm. this is where um, I've seen this, especially institutionally. Okay. There is a sense I, I got when I was in seminary that um, the gospel and Christianity was largely a white European kind of, um, they had the hegemony and the mastery of theology. Yeah. And so we never once, uh, I don't remember really honestly wrestling with theology written by people of color or by women, right. for example. Um, as a Korean American, I only later in life had to, on my own, learn about Korea's rich heritage of theological study. And wow. we have a form of theology in Korea called Minjung theology, which is called, is kind of a theology of the oppressed or the theology of the downtrodden people. Um, it's a form of liberation theology, some, yeah. some would say. Yeah. It doesn't mean I subscribe to it, but there are things I can learn from it that really speak to better being able to empathize and to uh, minister to those who come from some sort of background of oppression. Uh, I think somebody who understands Minjung theology would have a, a wonderful dialogue with people dealing with the African-American struggle in America, for example. Yeah. 
Right. But there's an assumption that if it wasn't written by a German from the 17 and 1800s, right. or if it's not done by someone, you know, from England or America in right. the 19th and 20th uh, century, then it doesn't have as much value. This does translate to the church, unfortunately, at a very practical level. Uh, we reduce a lot of minorities and people of color to almost what I would call minstrel ministries. Mm. So, oh, we have a black man on staff. Oh, really? What does he do? Oh, he's our praise worship leader. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Does he do anything else? Well, he's got a fantastic voice. I'm like, well, okay. I'm sure he can do other things though, right? Didn't he go to seminary? Oh, yeah, yeah. He went to seminary. Why is he only then the praise and worship leader? And, and I'm, I'm a praise and worship leader, so I don't say that to denigrate praise and worship. But it's, it's an illustration of how we assume that at the highest level of teaching, there is a sense in which there has to be some sort of European, Western theological basis. And male, right? I mean, you, yes. you talked about oh, yeah. paternalism, right? And, yeah, exactly. And, you, you assume that any, any woman on a staff team is, um, you know, probably not called pastor and probably only working with women or children, right? That's right, right. Yeah. So, and, and there's, I know that there's a lot of other issues we have to get into regarding like, you know, women's roles and stuff, but the general recognition of human worth and dignity right. is what's it's important. And so a lot of times, um, there has been a lot of what we call cultural negotiation that minorities have to do. And it's always tends to be very um, one-sided. So cultural negotiation, if people have not heard the term, is simply what a out-group person has to do in order to navigate in-groups well. Yeah. Uh, one manifestation of that is code switching. So as a third culture person, one of the things I've gotten good at is code switching. And um, black friends do this all the time. It's probably more dramatic with them, but I, Korean Americans do it, believe me. So when we're together and it's just a group of like Korean American friends, we will tell jokes and we will reference things culturally differently than if we are with mixed friends and crews. Sure. And it's because we know things about our, each other culturally that, um, people outside of Korean culture may not always get. Well, yeah. here's what happens in, in majority culture spaces and institutions. Um, the minority is always the one at the um, unbalanced end of the table. So okay. when we're culturally negotiating ideas and perspectives, we're always expected to come all the way over to the other mm -hmm. side of the table and sit there where the majority culture sits. And the majority culture rarely ever will reciprocate that. And that's what I mean by cultural negotiation. Yeah. So when you see like a Korean American family in a majority white church, for example, they understand the language just fine. And they get the culture because they're Korean American. So they can listen to your sermons and they can do all the work of joining in the worship and and i don't mean to make it sound like it's all terrible uh, they right. a lot of it is part of who they are too yeah. but what they don't get in those ministry settings often is 
they don't have the Korean side nurtured. So when they come to church, it's almost like they're saying, okay, for the next two hours, we're just going to be American. And then we can go back to being Korean American. And if we're around family, we'll just be more Korean. Okay. That's one of the, that's at the heart, I think, of being third culture type of people like myself. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I, I, it's helpful to frame it that way. Just for me personally, I know for others listening to be able to think about it through those three points, those three lenses. Uh, the, the thing that pops into my mind, Sam, is, is how, do, how do majority culture people like, like myself come down to the other end of the table, you know, mm-hmm. and, and make that move intentionally? That's a great question. And, and you know, it, it's going to sound almost Pollyanna or rose colored, but really um, a lot of it is simply getting to know folks outside of your cultural settings, like context and saying, you know what, um, and not doing it in a tokenist way. So don't, <laughs> I jokingly call it the community college brochure approach to relationships. Right. <laughs> so, don't look for a Korean guy just because, you know what, I really need a Korean person in my life because that's something I don't have. You're not collecting friends <laughs> to like complete the set, you know. Yeah. But if your interactions bring you into contact with them, or for the church, this is even more specific. There are people in your church, if you are at a multicultural or multi-ethnic church, who are not from your culture. Yeah. Build real relations. So go beyond the Sunday, hey, how's it going as you share a donut and coffee? But um, I call it kitchen time. One of the most intimate ways to get to know people outside of their cult or outside of their shell is in the kitchen. Mm. I'll give you an illustration. When we lived in Russia, it was so intimidating at first. Um, Everything you've seen that's kind of stereotypical about Russians being these dour, grim people can seem true, but it's not. And we had to learn that by building real friendships with Russian folks. And here's what we learned. Um, And they even say this uh, amongst themselves. They said, yeah, if you run into a Russian person on the street, you know nothing about them. Hmm. It's like when you get behind their door and have tea and break bread, this is when you see the mask come off and it's amazing. They are funny. They have a great sense of humor. They love to laugh. They have a joy, joie de vivre that's like as rivals any other cultures. But we just don't see it because in their culture, you don't put that business, quote unquote, so to speak, on the street. Sure. Um, and so one of the things we can do is get into one another's kitchens and, and have that, that tea or that beer with one another uh share the stories and get to know and and i i want to stress this the second point really take home and that's kind of what i'm going to close with is come aside as equals and as learners Hmm. too often i've had white friends come and get to know me but what i've seen them struggle to do is they can never seem to quite take off the mantle of master student It's almost like, yeah, I want to get to know you, Sam, so I can mentor you. I'm like, well, why do you want to mentor me? Like, how do you know I can't mentor you? And so I think that within a majority culture, there's this sort of kind of over, it's like it's a, 
it's a holdover belief in kind of the white savior or messiah complex that when we see immigrants, when we see people of color, don't mistake the fact that their English is broken for their mind being broken. Hmm. They're actually struggling because it's their second, third, or fourth language. Right. And we're speaking your language because you can't speak ours. I mean, and yet... I've often seen that thrown at us as if it's a sign of our deficiency. Growing up, I remember just going places with my parents and my parents, my dad has a PhD and he got his THM from Dallas Seminary. His English is really pretty good for a Korean, first generation Korean, but it's still Korean broken. Sure. And I just remember feeling so embarrassed at times when we'd go out to a restaurant or something and you can hear people just right outside of earshot saying things like ching chong, ching chong, or, or just, ah, so, you know, honorable Chinaman speak English, you know, and, and they, they make fun of the L's and the R's and things like that. And I just, as a young kid, it just, it, it would pierce your heart and it made you so embarrassed. You want, you were ashamed of your family. As someone older, I realized I have so much admiration because I realized, you know what, my dad speaking his third language because he actually speaks Chinese as well. And you're making fun of him because he can't speak your language. And yet you can't speak any of the other two he speaks, you know, and it took me a long time to come to grips with and realize I wasn't the one who is deficient. um, Just because my understanding of something in American culture might've been less than uh, some of my friends. Um, And one last illustration, and then I'll kind of open it up uh, how you want to take it, is think of this when you see immigrant families in your church and in your community. Um, Imagine, especially for a third culture people like me, growing up and not being able to have the intimate communication with your very own parents. Hmm. Um, That's something my white friends just take for granted so much. I speak Korean conversationally, but there are things that are still beyond me when it comes to really delving into the language of the heart. So I can have great conversations with my parents, but when I watch a movie or a TV show in America and you see the parents having these um, great heart-to-heart talks with their kids about when I was your age and I was in school and we did this and we did this, I can't have those same conversations with my parents. They can tell me about school in Korea, but I, can't, I don't have a context for right. what they experience. And there are things about my own parents' lives that they don't want to talk about very much because they lived through the Korean War. They lived through um, upheaval in Korea during the rise of democracy uh, when protests and things were taking place and the military was killing people. And so they've lost family and friends. They, they've seen people starve. Um, And so they'll tell us facts about their lives, but it's really hard for us to share in the commonality and the experiences of our lives. So imagine growing up and having the most intimate relationships in your lives disrupted still by this kind of cross-cultural divide. It's not just generational. So there's a lot of things I think that you don't see because that that Latino member of your church speaks English perfectly. That black, that black woman is very, you know, she's very comfortable talking about your TV shows and your, 
and your jokes and and she she listens to your music you know but but what you don't realize is there's also a side to these folks uh the asian family the the young korean woman the the middle eastern man that you're not sharing in because you haven't entered into that world yeah yeah man that's so good sam thank you for that thank you for Honestly, just taking time to teach us, to mentor us today. Um, it is obvious that you have a lot to offer. And um, this was just the kind of tip of the iceberg, but it was so helpful to me. And I know it is to the rest of our, our folks listening to 